want to begin by dismissing Children for Children's Church. We do have Children's Church today, even though it will be uh, in a different room. Our uh, Children's Church teachers are uh, ready to safeguard that process and uh, move them efficiently, effectively, and uh, as uh, quietly as possible to another part of the building. Good to be with you. I'm glad you made it here today. A little bit of a change. But I have full confidence in you all to follow and track those changes as we move through different places. Uh, The good news is after today, we'll return to the 20th Century Club. We'll settle in there and we'll be in there for the next uh, 11 and a half months, Lord willing. So it's only twice a year that we get bumped. And uh, we're thankful, I'm particularly thankful for uh, for Dan and for Soul and for many others like Pat who helped to make these transitions so smooth. We are uh, moving through a... A book of the Bible called The Acts of the Apostles. It follows the advance and spread of the early church. And uh, for the ministry of the Apostle Paul, there's a transition here that's anything but smooth. Paul has returned to Jerusalem. And over the last eight chapters of the book, uh, there's there's, uh, heightened tensions that form the backdrop of his ministry. We saw in past weeks that uh, Paul arrives in Jerusalem in, in, in the midst of tension between the uh, the sort of pro-Jewish faction of the ch- of the church and the uh, those that want to see the the gospel going out to the nations, and also against that backdrop, there's a, a great deal of uh, concern that Paul's ministry is uh, diluting the, uh, the the Jewish identity. And uh, in an attempt to make peace, he goes into the temple, uh, but even seeing him there creates a what we might call a ruckus. In technical terms, and uh, he's almost torn apart. The Roman guards intervene; they pull him away. And Paul says, "Wait, let me speak to the people." And so we we saw that Paul went to speak to the people. They realized that he is, in a sense, one of them. He affirms that he's he's Jewish. He's from the city of Tar- uh, Tarsus. Uh, he speaks in Hebrew. They listen for a while, but when he speaks of his ministry to take the gospel to the nations. Then everyone erupts and they, they clamor and that, that's where the story picks up today. They're throwing their cloaks and the dust into the air and the, the Romans then need to intervene yet again. So that's the story we're picking up on and it really the trajectory of the rest of the book follows Paul as he's under uh, imprisonment really and yet still continuing to give witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me begin reading in Acts 22 verse 23 and we'll continue into chapter 23 verse 10. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, that is the Roman soldier, a leader of the soldiers, ordered, ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that, he, that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he had been accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. 
And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if an, a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissensions, dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be ter- torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from uh, among them by force and bring him into the barracks. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if we were going through this entire section, the entire eight chapters, we could say each week that the main theme is pretty much the same. The main theme is that Paul is a faithful witness in the midst of great difficulty and that God is faithful to him. We would see that unfolding week after week. Uh, And we want to remember that's sort of the, the central arc that's holding all of this together. But we can observe other things also. As we look a little closer, we can see themes in addition to that that are emerging. So yes, yet again, Paul is faithful to his witness in this passage. And we'll see in this week and following weeks, God is faithful to him. But there's other things happening in the passage. They're interesting. They're worth thinking about. I think they give us insights into our own challenges, our own situation. One of the things that's a greatest surprise as we look at this passage this week is that Paul is a Roman citizen. This uh, maybe, if you were just reading along in the book, you would have been surprised at this. And you would have been surprised that his Roman citizenship has such a big role in the story. After all, it's protecting him here, not only from being beaten, but being torn apart by the mob, by the crowd that has risen against him. And as the story of Acts unfolds, it's precisely because Paul's a citizen that he will be able to appeal to Rome and go to Rome and give witness in Rome. So Paul's citizenship is not just an incidental part of the story, but it's a major part of the plot line. In some ways, it's surprising to find out that Paul's citizenship would be so important because he has introduced himself everywhere and at all times as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul speaks of himself as an ambassador for Jesus. So it's somewhat surprising to find out an ambassador for King Jesus also has citizenship in an earthly realm. Uh, we may come to recognize and understand this is normal uh, for Christians. Jesus, after all, said, my kingdom is not of this world. So we understand that the Christians have a, a citizenship in an earthly realm, even as they recognize Jesus as King and Lord of all. But if you were watching this unfold for the first time, it would be surprising to you. It would be as if uh, someone who was an ambassador to, to, an, to another country actually had citizenship in that country. 
You can imagine that perhaps the uh, national security forces were getting ready to, to arrest and, and, and exile an ambassador from the Russians because they were hacking into something. And as they were doing it, the ambassador said, is it right for you to expel a citizen of the United States? And you say, really? That's a surprise in the plot. Yet Paul here is a Roman citizen and an ambassador of Jesus. He is, in a sense, dual citizenship. But as we look at the story as a whole, we'll see one of the features that really jumps out in this section and many others throughout is all these sort of competing levels of loyalty and identity that mark the social context in which Paul is ministering. Remember last week when Paul stood in front of the the crowds outside the temple, he, he stood before them and he said, I, Paul, am a Jew, a citizen of the city of Tarsus. And so Paul recognizes he has Roman citizenship, he has citizenship in a city, he has an a ethnic identity as uh, a Jewish person, he, he speaks the language, he, these are his people, and he's a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. He's an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look a little bit further at this passage today and we see all of the ways in which the identity of the religious identity of these people or in a sense even their political identity. The Sadducees and the Pharisees both interacting very differently with the Roman authorities over them. They had different doctrines and different ways of understanding what it meant to be Jewish. This, this is the backdrop to the uproar in the temple. And again, maybe it's more surprising than anything else when Paul stands in front of the religious council, in front of the the Sanhedrin, he says, I am a Pharisee. Did you catch that? This is sort of interesting. We we think of uh, often the readings about Pharisees in the Bible are, are fairly negative. We think of them in their opposition to Jesus. But Paul saw that he had key beliefs that he even retained. He's obviously very different now than before. He came to believe not only in the resurrection generally, but in the resurrection of Jesus. And he bowed before Jesus as Lord. And yet, here in this setting, he can say, Brothers, I stand before you as a Pharisee. I identify with many of their beliefs. Christians are people, like like actually all people today, that have many varied and sometimes complex obligations to different groups and different authorities. To say we are dual citizens is a helpful way of thinking about it, but in some ways we have not just two citizenships, but multiple citizenships, or at least multiple loyalties. It's really only in the 18th century that we began to think uh, primarily of our identity, our political identity, being in a nation-state. Before that, people often thought of themselves primarily as part of a family or an ethnic group, residing under a king or an emperor. And so some of the things we think about today are even more complex when we look at the ancient world. I was reading on the internet the other day under the U.S. State Department the definition of dual citizenship. The United States recognizes that citizens of our country can also have be citizens of other countries. And they talk about the reality of being a dual citizen. Dual citizens have allegiance to America and to a foreign country. But there was a very interesting note in their description. They said this, this is the State Department's website. It's important to note the problems attendant to dual nationality. 
Claims of other countries upon U.S. dual nationals often place them in situations where their obligations to one country are in conflict with the laws of another. It's often the situation, they say, where there can be conflict because of multiple obligations. And I would say that not only is that something we see in this passage today, these many conflicts of different peoples and identities and, and nationalities and city versus empire versus ethnicity versus religion versus party affiliation. But aren't these in reality the same sorts of challenges that we face in our life as well? Isn't it true that each of us, each of us in America today, whether we're Christian or not, we have multiple levels of allegiance to different things, to a nation, to a city, to a political party, to a social group, to a family, to an ethnicity. How do these things fit together in our self-understanding? How do we deal with the many obligations? And then if we are a Christian, we are people who have a fundamental allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we navigate that in the midst of many of our other allegiances? Now, on, on one level, we could say there's a certain simplicity. If we flip over to page 9, we'll read from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is really just a summary of what Paul says in Romans 13. He says there is a king above all kings. That's the Lord Jesus Christ reigning uh, uh, as, the, as the great authority over all people. But God has ordained for the good of people a, a civil government or a civil magistrate under the Lord Jesus. And, and so we exist as people who have Lord, we live as citizens of heaven and citizens of earth. And yet we know, practically speaking, that living this out can be incredibly complex. Let me point out three things in the passage I think we can learn. First of all, the passage simply gives us a window into really complex social dynamics. Just, and I think we'll look at that and we'll think about some of our own challenges and our own problems. This is a window into the tensions that so quickly arise when we are cross-pressured by all these different groups and allegiances and identities. And secondly, we'll see that there's a, a surpri- maybe a surprising value placed on our earthly citizenship, where we are now. There's a surprising value in seeing those things. But third and finally, we'll see that we are called as followers of Christ to a, a, a highest allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And we'll think about how we can live that out in the midst of our cross pressures. Um, so first of all, what, what we see here is the, the backdrop of tension. And some of this doesn't even have anything yet to do with Paul's role as an ambassador of Christ. He steps into a cross-pressured situation. After all, first and foremost, Jerusalem is a city under the Roman Empire, and nobody likes that. There is a, a, the Jewish people are under the authority of the Roman guards. The Roman powers are there. The temple is very, very close to the major fortress, the, fort, the Antonian fortress. If you read these stories and you wonder, why did the guards show up so quickly when there's an outlaw? It's because they were stationed right next to it. They, they were used to these sorts of things happening, and they were on high alert all the time, especially during a major feast week like this. But you can imagine the resentments that would have arisen among these people. Look at the Romans and their heavy-handed approach. They call the assembly of religious leaders whenever they want. The Roman, the, uh, the Roman authority, the tribune, can walk out 
And he can call the the religious leaders to gather together in the Sanhedrin at the snap of his finger. They're at his beck and call. And look at the way they treat non-citizens. They they pull Paul before him in his bedraggled state, uh, almost torn apart by the crowds, uh, clearly somehow caught up in this this uh, inter-religious conflict. They, They just assume right off the bat he couldn't be a Roman citizen. And they go forward with sort of standard operating procedures. I mean, this would be pretty hard to live under the Roman Empire. They decide they're going to find out what happened. Do you see what they did? They're going to question him by flogging. Right, this isn't, and in some ways, this isn't necessarily a criminal activity. This was business as normal. And as a nation, we wrestle with how to you know, both support our police and provide appropriate checks and balances that resist uh, abuse of power. But in the Roman Empire, they didn't have a balance. They did whatever they wanted. This is standard operating procedure. And no one would have thought twice about it. That's the backdrop to what's happening. But as we look closer, we see all of the inter-party conflicts. When Paul stands up before the Sanhedrin, his first attempt is to reason with them. That doesn't go well. So he decides, all right, I, I got to get out of here. He recognizes the two groups, the sort of two political religious groups that are there. And he just rolls the statement in there that will set everything apart. The commentator F.F. Bruce says, he rolls the apple of discord into the assembly and everything explodes. That's a, a reference to the great, you know, classic uh, Greek story by Homer, the Iliad. It starts with a picture of these Greek gods and goddesses, you know, the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses. They're having a party. They didn't invite the goddess of discord. I don't know why you wouldn't invite the goddess of discord to your party, but uh, they chose not to. And so Eris rolls in the golden apple that says to the fairest of them all. And immediately, all, you know, these three great Greek goddesses start to fight together and it ends up leading to the Trojan War. Uh, if you want to read the story, uh, it's available online. Um, anyway, the, the golden apple of discord rolled into the assembly. It's not just the Greek gods and goddesses or the Sanhedrin that fights this way, is it? I would guess most social situations you go into, if you wanted to... Yeah, just entertain yourself. You could just sort of casually roll in that golden apple of discord and things would explode. If you're at your Thanksgiving dinner and your your Uncle Harvey comes in and he puts his Make America Great Again hat on the wall and your cousin Shelly comes in and her Feel the Burn uh, pin is still on her backpack that she hangs up. If you were a little bit bored over Thanksgiving, you could pretty easily roll in your golden apple of discord and Watch the fireworks. In fact, most settings now, it's almost harder to figure out how to say anything that doesn't cause this sort of attention to erupt, right? We, we start to rack our brains and think, how do I talk to Uncle Harvey and Cousin Shelley at the same time and not have a dissension arise among us? We live in times and days and ages of great challenge between people. And just like in this first century, often they relate to how we identify as part of a particular group. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the identity in the city and the empire, Jewish heritage and mission to the Gentiles, 
In some way, though not exactly the same, we can recognize these parallels in our lives as well. How do we navigate the tensions and the challenges? Now, the second point we want to make can be a little bit surprising at first, and that is, I think this passage teaches us, things we learn in other places as well, is that we're thought to think of a certain value in our earthly citizenship, a certain value in our identity as parts of different people groups. After all, we might have thought that Paul, who was an ambassador of Christ, would have renounced all other loyalties, obligations, ties, and identities. Now, it's true that he sees his role as ambassador above everything else, that lordship to Jesus is first and foremost, and yet he doesn't renounce all other ties. Here he is standing before the crowds outside the temple saying, I'm a citizen of the city of Tarsus. I am a Jew. Here he is, not just, maybe he is just saving his neck, uh, but he claims his Roman citizenship. A key factor in the story moving forward. For him to be an ambassador of Jesus doesn't mean he gives up his citizenship in Rome. And here's Paul, maybe most surprisingly at all, standing before the Sanhedrin saying, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. He, he, he recognizes Jesus is Lord over all, and that is the identity that will shape all other things. And yet there is a value. He doesn't disown all other identities. I think about that as we apply it to our own lives. We can recognize a value in our other group identities, in our nationality, in our place as a citizen of a country, of a city, of an ethnic group. These things are not unimportant. They are beneath our lordship, the lordship of Jesus, and beneath our heavenly citizenship. But there is an importance and then a value there. In fact, all of these things play a significant role in the story. It's Paul's ability to speak Hebrew and identify with these people that allows him to actually get a hearing in the first place. It's his Roman citizenship that not only saves him from a beating, but moves him throughout the Roman Empire. And it's his knowledge of the discord within the Jewish groups, his role as a Pharisee, that allows him to escape an otherwise difficult situation. Paul recognizes as well that, the, that not all of the distinctions are neutral. When, when he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he, he says, well, actually, I think they're right on this issue, on, on the resurrection of the dead. They're right. And on angels and spirits and all of that stuff. He says, they're right. And so it's a little more tricky than we might imagine. As, as if, as we may be tempted to do on occasion, just to retreat from all worldly connections at all and say, I'm just going to hide away in a, in a castle or go to the desert and I'll escape everything. But rather, Paul's calling is to walk faithfully in the midst of these many identities, these many things, knowing that Jesus alone is Lord over all. And so let me ask you just to explore that for a moment today as you think about it. In what ways has God given you a resource, a resource to be used in your other citizenships? I've had the privilege of traveling over the last couple of years, and every time I travel, I'm absolutely reminded of the incredible power of the passport of the United States of America. The power to move over and over, over all kinds of barriers. If you didn't have that passport or the ability to get it, your ability to move would be 
severely limited. It's so profound to stand next to a friend from another country in a very difficult or maybe unstable political situation, knowing that if the stuff hits the fan, you can leave, and they can't. That's something. And another, another angle, many of you here today speak English as your first language, and you know in the world at large, your ability to speak English is an incredible resource. You can move between countries speaking to them in ways that others can't. You can teach English and give an incredible gift to someone else to help them navigate in the broader world. Many of you come here today with financial networks and resources. You have relational networks that help you succeed and move forward. These are great resources that you have that can be used for service and for the benefit of others. Some of you come here today with things that don't immediately seem like a resource, but maybe are. Maybe you have a, a, a way of talking and speaking that comes from your past experience that opens doors that wouldn't otherwise be open. I, I remember when I was in seminary, I had uh, several Korean friends who had been on mission trips to the Middle East, and they were, I'd actually gone to Turkey, and they said, you know, because, because we are uh, Korean, the Turks want to talk to us. They, they trace like sort of, you know, Genghis Khan and his movements. And they're like, yeah, we're, we're cousins. And they would talk in a way that they would maybe have been more on guard against someone like me. A resource, an opportunity, or, or maybe perhaps your own experience of suffering and difficulty on your own or as part of a group of people can give you a resource. For speaking into the suffering, into the pain of others. Difficult as these things may be, if we know Jesus is Lord of all, we can own and embrace not only the resources, but just the inherent dignity and value of all of these sort of earthly things that we're a part of. For me, that means recognizing you know, that my, my Welsh heritage is, is a, a real wonderful resource. Is it? A Christian heritage passed down through the years. It's an incredible resource. And yet, I belong to the Lord Jesus before I'm Welsh or American or anything else. I can value without being ruled by it. Let me move to our third and final point as we move to a close here. This is a reminder of what we've been saying throughout. We live in a place of many cross tensions and pressures. And we're told we can value those other ties and those other allegiances in their appropriate way. But the ending point in many ways is a reminder that Jesus alone is Lord. That he is greater than all other kings. That our citizenship in heaven is greater than all other citizenships. That our membership in God's family is a greater membership than that in any other family. Jesus instructs his followers to be good citizens. To obey the laws of the land, to honor and respect the authority, even when those authorities are the pagan emperors of Rome. We're told to care for our cities, to build things that bless others, to seek the peace of the city. And yet, there are times where, in the words of the U.S. State Department, there will be a conflict of obligations. There will be times where the laws of Jesus and the commands of Jesus come in opposition to the laws and commands of Caesar. The Christians are told and urged that they always must bow their knee before Lord Jesus, before any other king or ruler or nationality or identity. 
But he alone is king and Lord over all things. We think of the experience of the Jewish people in exile in the Old Testament, taken from their homeland to Babylon. It would have been tempting for them to uh, sort of form their own little community on the outskirts of town and avoid everything Babylonian. But the prophet Jeremiah says, no, build here, plant here, invest here. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, go into the te- go into the government and serve until you can't. As we trace the story through the book of Daniel, we're reminded there are times where they couldn't. That there were times they could not bow the knee as the Babylonian Empire commanded. They could not worship the golden statue. They could not stop praying. And so and so they were thrown into the furnace, into the, into the lion's den. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would stand up to the king and say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, they, they would, he would throw them into the fire. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God. The Bible reminds us regularly that even though we are called to be faithful in our earthly citizenship, there is a allegiance to a heavenly king that must be obeyed above all else. Let me ask you how that applies to the tensions you find in your life. The tensions where your obedience to Jesus comes in conflict to calls of citizenship, perhaps, or faithfulness to your family, ethnic group. To your political party, your social group, your work, your employment. Other places where there's a conflict or a tension. Much of the time we can imagine we would serve faithfully and be the best of citizens, the best of workers, the most faithful to our group, our tribe, our place. And yet there will be a tension. Let me warn you today that if there is not a tension, perhaps it's because... Heavenly citizenship weighs too little upon you. Is it possible, as we think about our own lives, that we've been all too willing to bow our knee before the golden calf in the name of faithfulness to nation, to ideology, to tribe, to family, to place? If there is no tension, it could be a warning sign that we failed to follow obediently and faithfully the one king. He was king above all kings and Lord above all lords. Let me close by driving home in that direction the importance of our faithfulness to Jesus. Whenever the Bible speaks about heavenly citizenship, it speaks not of a citizenship that's not physical or otherworldly. But it speaks of a citizenship that anticipates the return of Jesus and the full establishment of his kingdom. There are two verses, two passages I want to read to you in the, in the uh, additional scriptures. If you turn to page 8, you can see them that strike directly on this sense of identity and place and loyalty and allegiance. Philippians 3.20, we've already referenced. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says your heavenly citizenship isn't about just 
you know, being not physical. It's not what it means to be heavenly. Heavenly citizenship means there's a kingdom that's coming in its fullness. The risen Lord Jesus now is reigning at the right hand of God. But there will be a day when he returns. And the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul introduces here is a future orientation. The author of Hebrews does the same thing. It urges us to go outside the camp to endure and suffer with Jesus. In other words, he said, be faithful even when it costs you something. Chapter 13, verse 14, he says, we hear we have no lasting city, no lasting nation, no lasting citizenship. But we see the city that is to come. And so Christians are called to be people who are faithful where they are, but people who are above all allegiant to Jesus. We're called to be people who practice the disciplines of faithfulness to Lord Jesus above all else. Every week as we gather together in the name of Jesus, worshiping him, we're saying something somewhat revolutionary. Jesus is Lord. And yes, we will seek to go out and by the power of the Spirit be the best neighbors, the best citizens, the best workers, the best friends, the, the best family members we can possibly be. But our allegiance is to Him first and foremost. And we prepare ourselves in a sense as we proclaim that together that when the rub comes, we will side with Jesus. When we join with the church down through the ages saying... Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We proclaim that He alone is Lord of our conscience. And He will be obeyed, whether push comes to shove, whether the gates of the furnace open, or the stone of the lion's den is rolled aside. At all costs, we will be faithful because Jesus is faithful to His people, His present. He is active. He engage, he's engaged. He's not a distant monarch who's forgotten about his people, but he dwells among them with compassion and care. And friends, let me suggest to you that perhaps mostly in the places of rub and conflict and tension, you have an incredible opportunity to see the present power of Jesus working for you. As you join me in praying towards that end.